0: welcome to rebel spirit radio exploring the frontiers of spirituality consciousness the esoteric and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth i'm your host nick mather and in this episode i am joined by author enfis book to discuss their first book queer kabbalah among many other topics enfis explains the inherently queer nature of magic and kabbalah the importance of challenging traditional dualities working with the Tree of Life for self-development, and the power of liminal spaces. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts or subscribe to the YouTube channel. Also, hit that like button and notification bell. Your support is truly appreciated. Enfas Book is a non-binary, bisexual clergy member within the Assembly of the Sacred Will and high priest of the Fellowship of the Ancient White Stag Coven in Washington, D.C. As a bisexual, non-binary pagan, they employ a queer lens to break down limiting binaries in magical theory and practice, and advocate for bisexual, transgender, non-binary, genderqueer, queer, and asexual visibility and inclusion. Enfys is a founding member of the Misbehaving Maidens, a band that describes their music as funny, filthy, feminist, fandom folk. The band seeks to promote sex-positive and queer-inclusive feminism through music. Enfys is the author of Queer Kabbalah, their first book. Enfis, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio.
1: Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here.
0: Well, I'm very happy that you're here, and happy Pride, by the way.
1: Yay! Uh, hey, Pride yeah, Month!
0: Yeah, I was thinking that I should devote the entire month to... Um, the LGBTQ community on the uh, podcast. I just didn't think about that, that <laughs> but I did want to say happy pride and well, I am you. so excited to speak with you and congratulations on your book.
1: Thank uh, you. It actually came out today as we are talking right now. Oh, it is the official right. release day, so all I'm right. very so, excited. And,
0: and today is June 8th, correct? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. Congratulations. Book
1: birthday. Yay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that it was a very fun read. I think it's very accessible to people who may not be familiar with Kabbalah. And there were a few times where I chuckled while reading it in a very good way. Good. Uh, so for example, at one point, point, we'll get into this, this may not make a lot of sense to people at this point that you referred to Bina and Hokmah as a lesbian power couple. <laughs> and I thought that was just brilliant. True. So it was a very, very fun book. So I thought that the first place to begin, there's actually a couple places I want to begin. So I'm going to pack a lot into one long question here.
1: Okay. I'll Um, try to keep up.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, what I a couple of questions is I wanted to know your background with Kabbalah. You know, when did you first encounter it? When did you first start working with it? But also I think maybe even before then or whatever feels most natural to you, I thought that we should talk a little bit about what Kabbalah is for anyone who may not know.
1: (laughs) For sure. And what I have for what is Kabbalah, or Kabbalah, I pronounce it Kabbalah, and there are various different pronunciations out there, and we can talk about that more if you want. Mm -hmm. But I like to think of Kabbalah a few different ways. One that amuses me is that it is a framework for understanding life, the universe, and everything quoting Douglas Adams way out of context, with and Kabbalah with its origins in Judaism. Another description I've heard is that it is spiritual architecture. Uh, that's Daniel Moeller from Shamanic Kabbalah. I also like to think of it as a way to understand how things become manifest and humanity's relationship with divinity. So most importantly, I think for a lot of magical practitioners who work with the Hermetic Kabbalah, as I do, it is the operating system upon which magic is built and works.
0: Okay, wonderful. Yeah, yeah we, we we did speak a little bit before hitting record about the pronunciation of Kabbalah and Kabbalah and the spelling. So my understanding is there's actually three different ways of spelling it there's more than that
1: even (laughs) yeah
0: yeah probably that with the k that refers to the jewish mystical tradition Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: the q refers to the hermetic magical tradition Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and the c i think sometimes you'll see it spelled with a c uh refers to christian kabbalah exactly Um, i think yeah
1: and and there's not a hundred percent consistency in those spellings i have read books that were clearly about the you know hermetic side spelled with a k and the other thing that varies is whether or not there is an h on the end mm. so i i do without the h because i appreciate brevity uh, but some people spell it with an h like uh kabbalah for wiccans which just came out a few months ago from jack Channock, spells it with a q and an h on, at the end mm. so uh, you're going to see a lot of different spellings one of the reasons for me it's really important to use that q is because I want to make sure people understand I am not trying to reinvent something from a culture I am not from. There is definitely a strong history of Kabbalah within Judaism, that is where it originated. Based on what we know in starting around the 1600s, there was a lot of really interesting collaborative work happening in Spain around various different types of spirituality and spiritual technology. And there was a lot of sharing between different groups. And so from there, there became this branch that existed outside of, but overlapping with the Jewish traditional use of Kabbalah in the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And that's the version that we call Hermetic Kabbalah, which is spelled with a Q. And that is what my background is in and ha- what I can speak to. I cannot mm-hmm. speak on behalf of people who are using it within a Judaic context.
0: Right, right. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that it actually goes back even further, mm-hmm. probably to like the 1400s. It's all when Muslim control of Spain when they were uh, all working and living and teaching together and learning together, which would have been a phenomenal experience, I think. Um, Absolutely.
1: And looking back at some of the designs of what the tree of life looks like, that glyph, mm -hmm. in Robert Wang's Kabbalistic tarot book, he has all these different versions of what that tree looked like. And sometimes it had leaves on it. Sometimes it was kind of like a wiggly snake. People tried a lot of different things before settling on the glyph that we use today for the tree of life.
0: Right. Right. Can you say something about hermetic Kabbalah, especially that hermetic aspect for anyone who may not be familiar with it? I'm putting you on the spot here. (laughs) I know.
1: Right. So what I, my definition of hermetic is something working within the context of ceremonial magic. Now, what is ceremonial magic? Ceremonial magic is when you basically apply the scientific method to magic. You try to find things that are replicable for anyone to do. You try them, you test them, you try variances, you do hypothesis, write it down, you know, the whole shebang. And when you come across something that is repeatable, that's like, okay, this is a thing we know works. And that's what gets continued in the ceremonial magic context. Probably the most prominent serial, ceremonial magic group was the Order of the Golden Dawn in Britain in the late 1800s and early 1900s, from which we have many famed occultists, Alistair Crowley, who branched mm-hmm. off from that. We have Dion Fortune, who also branched out from that. A lot of them started there and went to found their own groups. But then also Israel Regardie, who was the main person within the Golden Dawn, who was writing down and preserving and sharing all their information about Kabbalah, and he was raised Jewish, which I think is notable in that story.
0: Yeah, 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 and I think we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Israel Rigardi for releasing all of those notes, because otherwise it would have been secret. We wouldn't have that much, and, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't want to get too far off the path, but I know that one of the places that the hermetic Kabbalah is manifested is in Tarot Mm -hmm. and the deck that most people are familiar with the Rider-Waite-Smith deck I, I think that the Kabbalistic aspects in it are so kind of obscure intentionally obscured Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's why I think it's so wonderful that Israel Regardi did what he did because it kind of opened it up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's and that's what Crowley did as well. He just threw open all the doors <laughs> and said.
1: <laughs> Everybody enjoy this stuff. But then he yeah. would also conceal things within his text by, uh, you know, doing sort of intentional lying in certain uh, places when you're supposed to pay attention. Yeah. But yeah, I uh I really was fascinated and drawn into Kabbalah about 10 years ago was when I started really digging into it. And at first it was sort of because, well, the tradition I'm part of the assembly of the sacred wheel, a lot of the foundation of our magical work is based in Kabbalah. Um, That is part of our 40, almost 40 year old tradition at this Mm. point. So a lot of what we do is Kabbalah based and I wanted to understand how it worked Mm. So I started reading and we always recommend people read up on Kabbalah because it's important to understand how the things mm. we do work, but not a lot of people really relish it. Like they're just like, mm. all right, I will read this. It is complicated. <laughs> it is dense. It is not fun. It is hard and confusing. And, and I also had that experience, but I found the complications more interesting than off putting. Mm. What I found off-putting were a lot of the early texts written in the 1930s through the 50s or so have a lot of problems, Mm -hmm. (laughs) things that as a queer person living today, I did not find very um, friendly. So there's some blatant homophobia in there for starters. Mm -hmm. You've got some really pretty horrible racism and xenophobia, not to mention ableism and a lot of things that really require you to take a deep breath and try to separate the wheat from the chaff, because mm. there's a lot of great stuff in those books. You just have to get around some of this other stuff. Right, and my right. method is, you know, I write a few swear words in the margins. Don't worry, they're not <laughs> library books. They're mine. I can write in them if I want to. So I write a few swear words in the margins and then I go on. And, mm. and I just thought it would be so nice to read a book on Kabbalah that wasn't super dense that didn't lead to lead with, here's how complicated it is, now let's try to Mm. understand it. But something that started with, you know, you can get a simple grasp on this without having to have a PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go right. and learn and enjoy. And there's a lot here that you can experience rather than just trying to ingest an entire library's worth of information in short order. So that's one of the reasons I wrote, I wrote this book is mm-hmm. it's a book I wish I had when I was starting to learn about Kabbalah.
0: Right. Yeah. And like I said, I found it very accessible and I think that others will find it accessible as well. I think the closest parallel that I would make in books that I've read would be Chicken Kabbalah by Lon Milo Duquette, (laughs) uh, which I think he also tried to make it very accessible to people.
1: He really yeah. did. He, he wrote a very funny book. The piece that I find just a little uncomfortable about that book is that he speaks from the point of view as a rabbi, and he is not
0: uh, Jewish. Yes, that's right. And that, yeah.
1: that gets into a cultural appropriation right. conversation. Right. But, but I do appreciate how funny it is and how he made it very accessible for mm-hmm. a lot of people.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now, is the, the, the Assembly of the Sacred Will, is that a Wiccan group?
1: Yeah. So we are Wiccan. It's sort of a fusion of Wiccan ceremonial magic, you know, right. at the end of the day. We're a syncretic Wiccan tradition. We are 14 covens strong at this mm. point and been going for about 40 years, like I said. Yeah. And yeah, we're based in the mid-Atlantic. It's all mm. geographically contiguous at this point. We're all based in either Maryland, I think, mm. do we have anyone in Virginia? Not yet. We have covens in Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York at this point and Delaware.
0: all right. Yeah, I, I have some familiarity with uh, Wicca, and I've got some Wiccan books here surrounded surrounding me, but I think that most of the ones that I'm familiar with in the Wiccan covens that I have visited, they, as far as I know, never included Kabbalah. So I found it really interesting that you were incorporating that ceremonial hermetic aspect to Wicca. I really appreciated what you were doing with the genders because Mm. it is problematic. I remember reading some Wiccan books about ceremonies and it's all masculine, feminine, man, woman. And, you know, it even gets into, you know, heterosexual intercourse sometimes. And I remember reading this, I'm like, no, I don't (laughs) want (laughs) to, you know, and I felt left out. And so I think that it was, uh, what you're doing here is really helpful to include people.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, into yeah. The tradition. yeah, I uh, it's interesting. My journey with Kabbalah has run in close parallel with my journey of my understanding my own gender. Mm. So I came out as non-binary a few years ago and I use they, them pronouns. And part of the reason for that is the work that I was doing, you know, masculine, feminine energy, and I'm I'm not a person who believes there is a continuum, one end is masculine, one end is feminine, and non-binary people are smack in the middle. It's really like there's a different axis entirely in that equation, Mm -hmm. and we just, Mm -hmm. you know, we're up there, but trying to discern whether those two energies made sense and were things I could identify within myself I started to see all the overlap between them and started to deconstruct and be like these aren't actually opposites these are different states but not necessarily opposite and then I started to get really frustrated because there is a tendency in Wiccan traditions to gender everything including things that do not by any means require gender, like for example, magical tools or elements, things Mm -hmm. like that. You don't have to gender them. There are things that transcend gender and it's okay. So that was another reason that writing this book was important to me is that I felt a lot of the Kabbalah writers were overlooking some very queer inclusive things that were inherent to the tree of life and sort of pushing them to the side or being like, oh, oh, not really. Like I'm pretty sure it was the Zohar I was reading a translation of and there's a line about unless a person has both masculine and feminine within them they cannot see God or something to that effect Mm. and the translator's note was this is why it's important to get married (laughs) and I was like (laughs) Hmm. is it though? Is is that the (laughs) message? So, and and there are many times where like Israel Regardi kind of does that too, where he's like, Mm -hmm. well, you know, just a big sort of, no, it's not gay. And it's like, no, it, it kind of is. And that's okay. It's really inclusive for everyone. So I started pulling at the thread when I realized a few things where I was like, wait a minute, this is not a binary gender symbol at all. And, and sort of pulling apart And it just kept going like the more I dug, the more I found, and I will say I am not the first person to think about Kabbalah in a queer context, but I could not find anything online about it Mm. so uh, there are other people who've been teaching it but that work has not been published in Mm. a way that I could find so I think independently several different people, including myself kind of came to this conclusion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask this and this is, I think, maybe it's a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just to be clear, what do you mean by Queer Kabbalah?
1: So I named the book, well, I don't get the final say in the name of the book or its title, the publisher gets to decide that, but I'm glad they chose my suggestion of Queer Mm -hmm. Kabbalah because my initial inclination was something like, well, we're queering the Kabbalah because there's this academic discipline of queer theory where you look at things through a queer lens. You say, okay, what's being assumed as the norm here and why? And is that actually true or not? And where does it come from? So I was thinking, it's really taking a queer perspective on Kabbalah, but the more I found, the more I'm like, no, it just already is queer I don't have to put any rainbow glitter on this I just have to point at things that already exist within the tree that have been there for much longer than I've been alive so that's the part I found really exciting in this work was that I'm not just saying well this is kind of like this thing or you could look at it from this way I'm just saying no other people have been saying this for decades that this is part of the tree of life and it's that's pretty gay. You know, that's pretty queer. <laughs> there, There's a lot of things that I was very, I found myself in my magic and, mm. and was able to better understand myself through it.
0: Mm, wonderful. And didn't you also say or suggest in the book that magic itself is queer?
1: Yes. Yeah. Magic is queer. It is anti-capitalist. It is, uh, radical because magic breaks down power structures Mm -hmm. the concept of gender is deeply rooted in power structures you know of being able Mm -hmm. to point to the other you know this is not that and ultimately that tends to lead to and this is better than that Mm -hmm. so magic levels the playing field because magic says everybody has power Everybody is divine. You don't necessarily need an intermediary between you and the gods. You can talk to them directly. You can interact with the magics of this planet and the universe. And I think that's pretty awesome. You know, we come into pagan and magical traditions as people who've been marginalized and had our power taken away. Only to have some people say, well, now you've got to do it just like they do in society and you've got to fit into masculine or feminine and you've got to be able to, you know, do, you know, put the blade into the cup and then that, you know, makes magic like Ikea furniture, you know, insert tab A into slot B and and feeling like, wait a minute, I came here to feel good about being weird and to Mm -hmm. be with other weirdos, but we're just going to use the same stuff the rest of the culture does. That's not okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that 100%. And, and I think that that goes back, you know, even the the entire idea of like a witch, I always think in terms of, I think it was the Simone de Bouvier, the French feminist Mm -hmm. existentialist philosopher who defined woman as the deviant other. Mm, And I second sex, I believe is the title of her book. Yeah. Yeah. And I always kind of think about that in terms of not just the female, but Other others, as well, that there's always this, like you said, existing in the margins. And that was for me when I was very young and toying a little bit with Wicca, that was one of the appeals to it, was that it was you know, I felt, you know, like, well, I'm an outsider and, you know, maybe this is an outsider tradition. And then you get in and it was all masculine, feminine, like you said, you know, chalice and blade.
1: <laughs> yep. You got to arrange the circle, boy, girl, boy, girl, the magic doesn't work, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, yeah. I don't, I don't want to, throw too much shade on other people's tradition right, and what works right. for them. I just think that if you're hoping to draw people who are on the margins of society, you might want to take a closer look yeah. at some of those assumptions about how magic yeah. works and see if that's really true.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know, I think that it, it evolves, you know, all mm-hmm. traditions evolve over time. And I think that it was a product of the time that it was created. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, it doesn't have to stay that
1: way. Exactly. I mean, a lot of what we consider to be ancient knowledge was really just sort of cobbled together in the fifties and of the 1950s. And you know, it really isn't that ancient. There's a lot of guesses. There's a lot of stuff we can trace, but oral tradition is a long game of telephone. (laughs) Right, right.
0: For sure. For sure. Yeah. We're always in this, I think process of recreating something that we don't really know and trying to, I guess, make it what we want it to be. But that there's creativity in that.
1: <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, yeah. and there's power in having something repeat and be the same over and over and over. You're creating a container yeah. for that thing. Right, right. But you know, just because it's old doesn't mean it's best. Just right, because it's right. ancient doesn't mean it's authentic to be used right. today. Not trying to do magic from 500 years ago in a modern context may not actually work very well because we don't have the same relationship with our world that people did back then. And, you know, there are ways we can update and make stuff really interesting without like having to bring iPads into ritual circle, you know, (laughs) like there's ways you can modernize that don't actually involve technology.
0: Let's talk a little bit about magic and Kabbalah and Mm -hmm. how those work together.
1: Mm. Well, you mentioned tarot earlier, and I like to think of Tarot is being built on the operating system of Kabbalah, as you you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So just one aspect that is ingrained with Kabbalah. There are 10 spheres, there are 10 cards for each of the suits. There are 22 major arcana cards, there are 22 paths that connect the spheres on the tree of life. So there's a lot of synchronicity there. There's also four worlds and we have four court cards. So the parallels are really pretty remarkable. And I think the vast majority of modern tarot decks are also built on that model that is very Kabbalistic. It also has really close ties with astrology. The astrology connections are a little messier. I include them in the book. I included two correspondence charts in the book, just two, the one with tarot and the one with astrology, because those are the most frequently used ones and the most widely applicable for magical work for a lot of people. So yeah, astrology gets interesting because we keep discovering new planets and it's a lot fuzzier a number of things that sort of map to the tree and how they map and disagreement over what gets mapped where. But yeah, I mean, to me, one of the aspects of Kabbalah and how it relates to magic is that it teaches us how things become manifest, Mm. or at least it gives us a diagram for a possibility of how things become manifest. You go from this thing that's like the inhale before the exhale, pure potential with nothing actually happening yet. And then boom, it becomes wild rushing energy, but energy rushing in all directions doesn't actually do anything. So then you have to give it the idea of a container to put that in. And once you mix energy and form, put tab a into slot B you get the potential for manifestation and for Kabbalah uh sorry you get the potential for manifestation and magic
0: Mm. okay so but I'm still a little confused I mean yeah I understand that but is it a is it giving you a blueprint for manifestation is that how you work with it with uh, magical or is there some other way
1: There's a lot of different ways you can work with it in magic. So there is that pathway to manifestation called the lightning flash. Mm -hmm. That is, if you play connect the dots with the Sephiroth or spheres one through 10, you get this particular pattern and you're following a particular flow of things and a dynamic tension between force and form. So it goes through a lot of different iterations before things are actually here and existing here. So it gives you an idea of if I want to take a thing that doesn't exist yet, and make it exist, what kind of process does it have to go through? Yeah. So that's one of them. The other thing that's really useful, and I think why a lot of people lean hard on those correspondence tables and books, which I, if I'd included many more of those, it would have been a much longer book, but you know, I have like, other books have done this better, go there, it's okay. <laughs> but with those correspondence tables, it is another tool in your toolkit for creating resonance among the types of things related to the magic you're trying to do. For example, if you are trying to bring some expansive energy to what you are working on, you want to open up new possibilities for things. Well, for those who work with astrology, you might say Jupiter is a really good thing to work with. All right, so we've got Jupiter. And then if you work with tarot, You might also be looking at the fours from each suit because there's a certain expansive quality there. And then if you bring in Kabbalah, the fourth Sephiroth is Hesed. And that is all about expansion and possibility and vision. So you start to layer these symbols on top of each other and you're basically creating a calling card for the universe to say, hey, this is what I want to happen here. I'm using every symbol in my symbol set to drive energy in this specific way. So it's one one more thing you can add to the toolkit.
0: Okay, wonderful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because that was something I was thinking about earlier in terms of the Sephirot and the energies of them. And I know that in many magical traditions. There's also working with various gods and mm-hmm. those energies. And I, I've done this. I have an altar in my bedroom with Jupiter on it and <laughs> trying to tap into those Jupiterian energies. And for me, it's not, you know, that it's the idea that there is this Jupiter, you know, Zeus that I'm trying mm-hmm. to tap into. It's, but there's that archetypal energy. And exactly. it seems like that's exactly what you're doing with the Sephirot.
1: Right. Yeah. There's deity correspondences too. I mean, there's, there are correspondences for herbs, for perfumes, for incenses, like I could go on and on minerals and animals and everything like that. It's, it's basically a giant universal card catalog that we sort things into. And I know that that metaphor dates me quite a bit. Apologies (laughs) to folks younger than me who maybe haven't used one, but But yeah, I mean, it's a way you can sort and retrieve information that has been filed there over time by building a relationship with those Sephiroth. And I I meant to mention before, too, the other correspondence you could add to that working for Jupiter is the color blue, because that is Mm -hmm. the Briatic color of Hesed that you could Mm -hmm. add as an additional symbol in your working. And a lot of what I have in the book are layerings of those different types of symbols that, that are trying to resonate with the exact same type of energy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I specifically wore a gray shirt today to try to tap into the hookma wisdom energies.
1: <laughs> Excellent. I guess I'm wearing, you know, with white and black, I'm doing Keter and Bina over here. Yeah. So the, between the two of us, we've got the yeah. supernal triad.
0: Yeah. Right on. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, and I did give it thought though. I was thinking like, what color shirt am I going to wear for this?
1: <laughs> I just didn't want to wear anything with swear words on it. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is what I have.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's very good. So you can use the, the, the tree of life. And I I think that what I'll do, I I think most people are familiar with the tree of life, but in the show notes, I'll try to put a JPEG in there of the tree of life so that people can refer to it and look at it if they're a little bit lost, but you can use it for magic, but can you also use it for like self-development?
1: Oh, absolutely. That is one of the hallmarks, I think, of Hermetic Kabbalah is that we see the tree of life like within the Judaic tradition, it's the 10 divine emanations of God. The way we approach it, and I'm not saying that's wrong, that's just it's a different approach to the same tool. Within the Hermetic tradition, these are different levels of consciousness. Mm. These are different levels by which you can connect yourself back to the source. Like we're already divine, like we don't need to become diviner necessarily, mm. <laughs> but. Mm. Being able to access the part of yourself that is eternal, your higher self, and figuring out what kinds of things do I need to work on to get to that point, Kabbalah is a roadmap. And that is one of the most exciting things that got me into it early on was I felt like, am I making progress at all? I'm doing all this stuff. I know personal development's really important. I'm doing my shadow work and all these other wonderful buzzwords we have within the vegan community. But it's like, oh, this kind of shows me where I'm going. And part of what excited me about that and got me thinking along that line too, is Alan Moore's Promethea series Mm. of graphic novels, where literally the Kabbalah is a roadmap that the characters travel and they go along the paths. And it's really, if you learn better through allegory, that is probably what I would recommend as, Mm. as as something to read on that.
0: It's on my list. I need to read that I'm very aware of it, but I've not read it yet. Uh, But parts of
1: it parts of it do not age. Well, I will put that out there. (laughs) There are there are some things that are a little like "Mm, really and to me the story isn't as good as the metaphors within Ah, it. The way tarot is described the way the magical tools are described. That is all fantastic, and it was written as basically here is a primer on ceremonial magic. You know, here you're going to learn Kabbalah, tarot, the elements and the tools. Boom, wow. there you go. Yeah. And we're going to put a story around it and yeah. talk about the imagination and manifestation and how all that relates. But mostly it's a really good grounding tool in those kind of disciplines.
0: Hmm. Okay. So this, using the tria life for self-development, is that what is meant by pathworking?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question. So I use path working in a more general sense to mean mm-hmm. you are journeying on a path. I'm sorry my cat has decided to <laughs> nibble on my arm here suddenly and you can't see there you can just barely see him this yeah. is Atticus. Yeah. Uh, He's just decided it is attention time. So pathworking for me is you are following a guided meditation. You're walking a path someone is describing to you within your mind. Hmm. So, but yes, there are paths within the tree of life and walking along those paths, like using Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki's book, The Shining Paths, which I highly recommend. Hmm. That is definitely a way you can do some inner work and to work your way up the tree.
0: Okay. And you provide uh, a lot of, um, I think, pathworthy, excuse me, pathworking exercises in the mm-hmm. book, uh, the the meditations.
1: Yeah. I think it's important that, and my tendency of probably one of my flaws with my approach to magic is I love to read so mm-hmm. much and I just want to read everything. And when they have exercises, I tend to go, that's nice, and kind of continue reading. Yeah. But in truth, we learn the best when we experience a thing. Sure. And I want to make sure people have the tools to experience that. And it's, it's one thing to teach. It's another thing to show. Hmm. And so I think it's important in any kind of magical book that it's not just here is the history of blah, but how do I use that? How can right. I relate to that? How can I connect hmm. to it is really important.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I liked the practices that you created because there's a consistency to all of them. You know, yeah. all they all begin the same way and kind of end mm-hmm. the same way, but there are different variations that are unique to each of the Sephiroth. So I thought that was really helpful.
1: Thank you. Yeah, when I part of what kicked off the queer Kabbalah work is that in 2017, as part of my second degree work within my tradition, you have to create something that can be used by the whole tradition and benefit mm-hmm. the whole tradition. And what I did was a series of I basically wrote all the classes and rituals and path workings my coven would use for a year. So I wrote eight classes covering the 10 Sephiroth. I paired Gebra and Hesed, and Netzach and Hod together for the same holiday, because mm. it's really helpful to approach those as pairs, honestly. So it worked mm. out well. But yeah, so I wrote these path workings, and they are heavily based on Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki's Shining Paths, But what I wanted to do when I started blogging about queer Kabbalah was say, okay, how would I make this different? Like, how can I do this in a way that's a bit more approachable and, but will still work magically? And so the way I envision the temples of each of the spheres is probably not exactly like people would see elsewhere, but it was important to me that these environments be something that, you would be comfortable exploring in and environments that are not full of, you know, binary gender symbols and things like that, or, you know, oh, now you're meeting your feminine side or something like Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be a little more open-ended what a person is going to experience and what they're going to learn there, because that's ultimately their own. I can't tell them what, what they're going to learn or get out of it. That's really on them. So I had a lot of fun creating those and I really wanted to tie them all uh, to kind of the same starting point because it's Mm -hmm. important to start with Malkuth and work up so you have some grounding. If you jump straight to Keter, you're going to be lost. (laughs) So so make sure we start with our roots and grow up so that it is easier to come back to this plane and not get too too lost in the clouds.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, Because we all need to
1: like drive and do things and like (laughs) do things where we need our our feet on the ground.
0: Right. For sure. And I also this is completely off the topic, but it's here in my notes. I'm going to mention it right now. I just wanted to uh, say thank you uh, for mentioning the TV series Angel in in the book. Ah, Uh,
1: (laughs) <laughs> that, that phrase has stayed with me forever. So yeah, yeah the, the phrase in the book is from one of the many apocalypse episodes of Angel, yeah, which yeah. I, I loved Buffy and Angel back oh, in the yeah. day yeah. And, and still really enjoy them. But there's this line about if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. And that oh. paradox just hmm. really struck me. I had it as a quote on yeah. one of my social profiles for a while and yeah, that's, that's kind of the ultimate lesson of the tree of life to me, yeah. is that at the end of the day, we're all one. We're all from the same source. We are all drops in the same ocean. And to an extent, you know, this life, we have to keep it in perspective. But at the same time, if if there is no meaning, then it's our job to give it meaning. It's our job to make this journey in this incarnation, the best it can be for ourselves, but also the best it can be for others. Mm -hmm. And it's been so rewarding to hear people who got early reading, early copies of the (laughs) book and my friends who just got their pre-orders over the weekend say, this is really shifting my perspective on some things. And, and I really appreciate that. So, you know, that's part of my work as a person is I want to, I want to be a guide where I can, where I found stuff that might help people. And that's great.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we're all called to that kind of work right now. You know, I always think that this is a kind of all hands on deck moment. Um, Yep. You know,
1: This Um, world doesn't get any easier to live in, does it?
0: (laughs) No, it doesn't. And and that's why I think that the Angel quote is so uh, appropriate. And, you know, and I, you know, I just, I love Buffy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: I I managed to work in references to not only Angel, but also the unbeatable Squirrel Girl, which is my favorite comic of all time, written by Ryan North, and also Mystery Science Theater 3000, which Mm -hmm. was my favorite show for many, many years growing up and Mm -hmm. helped me understand, hey, maybe conformity isn't the goal of all life so yeah right, I, I got right. I got to work a little bit of my nerdery in there yeah, originally yeah. I wanted to put more song like lyrics in there but that's really yeah. hard to get the rights for so I had to cut right, all that out right. and I had to cut out all the swear words I put in originally because yeah. that's, that's, I find yeah. them amusing but you know I understand it's for a broader audience so we right, don't want people to right. drop the book because they see right. something they don't like
0: Right, right. Well, I always liked, uh, I'll move along from this, but I, one of the things I liked about Angel is that it did bring up all these questions of identity um, for sure. throughout it. Um, so I thought that that was appropriate um, uh, for, uh, for the book that you were doing, although that's not what you're talking about, but you know, I think it's, it's always there.
1: Yeah. That question of destiny is really interesting. Like what, is how we're created what we're destined to be you know yeah. what is our path how much say do we get in our own path is it all predetermined or not yeah. you know there are some big philosophical questions yeah. tackled yeah. by that show
0: yeah yeah and you know again you know like identity you know it's i, I always think of the character of fred Illyria. Oh. Um, and elyria um i will never you know, stop
1: my heartbreaking from that I whole storyline no spoilers for people who haven't I seen know. it but, oh, oh
0: but it's like you know what makes a person a person what makes you 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 know and i think the same thing with angel and the idea that you lose your soul when you become a vampire who are you what remains right. you know so these are really important questions of yeah. identity and i think queerness fits into it you know very much so very much yeah so.
1: now th- now that you mentioned it yeah that has been a recurring theme for me because i wrote my college senior thesis on the the uh, movie dark city oh, yeah. which really has strong undertones of philosophy about like what is the human soul what makes Mm. a person that person, can we Mm. just mix and match people's memories and change the way they behave or is there something more fundamental than that. So Uh. I wrote, I had to defend it as a thesis to three different department representatives because Uh. that was a requirement if you wanted to graduate summa cum laude. So I had to come at it from the perspectives of philosophy theology and literature all at once. and. Yeah. It was really fun. I I got the summa cum laude. I passed, but I still have that paper and I still go back to it. I'm like, yeah, that movie, it still resonates a lot. Mm -hmm. There's some really big questions in there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations on (laughs) the the graduation there. Oh, well, Uh, I'm very
1: pleased. Obviously it has helped my career amazingly. (laughs) (laughs) Like no one cares how you did in college once you're out in the working world, but you know, I did learn (sighs) a lot about writing. So that's a good thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and you're right. Very well. Uh, Oh, thank you. Very, very well. So um, we've been talking about how gender is represented in magic and Kabbalah and whatnot. And there's this, you know, dualism often, which is my understanding is dualism almost always incorporates a value judgment. And that's what we want to get away from. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what you—the language that you lean towards—is polarities.
1: Yeah, actually, I don't. Polarity is how it's been described in many mm-hmm. places, kind of in the same way of dualism. Mm-hmm. What I—I'm trying to struggle with what would be a better word. I. Ivo Dominguez Jr. says valence might be better. Mm. He has this great essay on polarity in Queer Magic Anthology and talks about polarity isn't just two opposing points. Mm. That's not the only way you can make magic. There are a lot of different powers to be tapped into. There's the power of resonance of like things. Mm. There is the power of things that maybe are slightly different, but work well together, like different notes in a chord in music. There is things that cycle around each other, there's, you know, magical power there. So there's a lot of different ways different energies can interact. And if you limit yourself to just, well, it's just masculine and feminine energy, and then that's mm. it. It's, I mean, that's kind of like magical training wheels in a way. Mm. Yes, it works. And we probably all instantly know what it means when we say masculine and feminine, because we are raised in a patriarchal society. So naturally, man, active, woman, passive, like mm. absolutely like yeah sure no notes we've got that uh but there's so much more and also a lot of ways we're already using things outside the gender binary to create magic in various Mm -hmm. traditions so things like you know the pentacle that's not a binary energy symbol right there you've got a lot of different points Mm crisscrossing we also have the tree of life in kabbalah that is not binary in fact one of the first things that struck me is Oh, they say there's a masculine and a feminine pillar, but then there's this one in between. Mm. And that's the pillar of balance or, you know, I like to call it the non-binary pillar myself, Mm. but it's not just a blend between the two. It's like a transmutation of the energies from both sides to create something completely new. Mm. And. That really resonated with me, and I think there's so much potential for folks to work with their magic on a deeper level by taking a queer lens to concepts like polarity or binaries mm-hmm. or dualisms.
0: Yeah, and I really like the, the the middle path aspect too, because the first thing that comes to my mind is that it's that middle path that gets you from Malkuth, you know, which is mm-hmm. this world, straight up to Kether, which is you know where divinity kind of is you know yep um so it is that path to the divine
1: exactly right? but at the same time you you know you can't ignore the pillars on either side right, and one of right. the metaphors i use in the book is i love rock climbing i find mm. it to be a fantastic yeah. way to stay fit and when you're climbing you're going up but you also have to be conscious of your points of balance and sometimes Mm -hmm. the points of balance to get you to that next rock you're trying to reach for look very unbalanced from the ground like if someone's looking at you you're standing on your right tiptoe your left foot is being used as kind of a kickstand and then you're reaching your right arm up way high while twisting and but that is how you ascend so much in the same way with kabbalah if you just go straight up the middle pillar, you're kind of missing a lot of the journey because you've got to understand and be able to hold intention tension that forces from the pillars on your left and on your right, you know, the, the pillars of force and form or masculine, and feminine, mercy or severity, you know, whichever binary thing you want to call them. They're very important to the journey and they can't be left behind. But it is interesting to note that what we would argue as if we were to rank the Sephiroth on importance, I'd say the most important ones are the ones in that middle pillar. You've got Keter, the ultimate unity, and Malkuth, the ultimate manifestation. And then the point of perfect balance between them in Tifereth and the place where we encounter imagination in Yesod.
0: Hmm. Yeah, wonderful. So with the... Um... You know, I like the the metaphor that you gave of the rock climbing that you have to have both. you know, you have to move about to get to the top, but you also talk about liminality
1: mm-hmm. a, a
0: little bit. And I was wondering if you could maybe discuss that a little bit in terms of its relationship to these the problems that we're having with the language of dualism and polarities and how it can help us.
1: So yeah, liminality is another thing we work with a lot in magic, and maybe without realizing that that is one of the queerest concepts we can work with. Liminality is about that which is and is not, the betwixt and between, the places that are neither here nor there. And that is how I've kind of come to understand my gender is sort of a liminal space. Uh, It doesn't exist on the map, it's just it's not here. It's not there. It just is. My my short, snarky answer is gender is exhausting. I just want to be a cloud. <laughs> <laughs> like being corporeal is kind of a pain sometimes, literally. But when we talk about liminality, I think it's very useful, especially for folks who are maybe allies trying to understand queer folks better, is to work with those ideas of liminality. Like crossroads. That's a theme that comes up a lot in magic, you know, the places that aren't here or there doing things on, you know, The full moon or the new moon, those are points of transition in the moon cycle. Those are liminal periods. We talk about Beltane and Samhain as being when the veil is thinnest and in those sort of, it's a liminal time. So there's power in the liminal things that we can explore, like labyrinths. I love labyrinths, like walking them, doing finger labyrinths, I find is just super helpful, not only magically, but also for mental health, just that sort of intentional, mindful walk, to nowhere and then back again is is really great so I would encourage people if especially if they're allies trying to wrap their heads around like why is this so important what what is so different about being queer how can I experience something like that think about the times in your life that are liminal like if you're with someone who is on the verge of death Mm. what does that feel like you know if you are in between jobs and just trying to find your way and you have no script for how to get that next thing. You're just trying different stuff. That's a liminal time. And there's a lot of very familiar things for queer folks of, of that Mm -hmm. experience. You know, we, we don't fit the standard script. We have to make it up as we go.
0: Yeah. 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 And you use coming out as a metaphor throughout the, this journey on the tree of life, which I also, found really helpful because it's something that all queer people have to do and constantly have to do.
1: (laughs) It's not a one and done, unfortunately. No. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, I would say not everyone has to do, not everyone chooses to do, right. everyone yeah, has true. different, yeah. like some right. people is simply not safe to do so. Right. And and right. I respect that everyone should yeah. come out in their own time if they want to. Right. But coming out to yourself is something that I think usually does happen mm-hmm. at some point. We come to understand ourselves as, oh, that's what I am. Things make more sense now. Okay, now I can proceed based on this. So... Yeah, it's, um, coming out is really powerful and I liken it to the experience of Tiferet, which is the point of perfect balance on the Mm -hmm. tree. It is the sixth sphere. It's right in the middle of both. It's in the middle pillar and between the top and the bottom of the tree. And what is that experience that click like, like, Oh, this fits like that's the experience of Tiferet. So when you realize, Oh, I'm non-binary or for me earlier in my life, it was also, Oh, I'm bisexual. I'm not confused. I'm just this. Mm. That's, it's a really powerful moment and one I don't think we celebrate as much as when you come out to others, which like you said, you have to do over and over and over again, not just reminding Mm. people who conveniently forget, but every new situation you have to evaluate is it safe to come out here? Should I come Mm. out here? Yeah, that's, it's interesting. I've been house hunting lately and there are neighborhoods where I'm like, would I feel safe here Mm. as a person with pink hair and rainbow glasses who probably is going to have a pride flag in front of their house, (laughs) you know? And quite honestly, there's some places where I'm like, no, I would not. I would not feel safe in this neighborhood, even though it's a great house. I'm not sure this is the one for me.
0: I feel very fortunate that I live in a very safe neighborhood. You know, I have a lesbian couple across the street. There's a lesbian couple (laughs) down the street. Uh, There's a gay couple who have adopted kids, and we have that and we have families. Um, uh, So it's a nice blend, and and I love to see people coming together. And, you know, that's one of the things I was thinking here in terms of Tiferet, because I know that things can be. You know, the Sephiroth, I think you, you call them like card catalogs in the book. You also refer to them as like a file filing cabinet. Filing
1: cabinet. Yeah. Borrowed that from Israel regarding it's a filing cabinet of the universe.
0: Yeah. But I've seen it also as self, which is perfect Mm. for what you were just talking about, but also beauty. And, um, and I think I, I could be wrong on this one, but also compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, compassion
1: for yourself and compassion for yeah. others. You know, every time yeah. you learn something new about yourself, in some ways, it may make your life harder, but also makes your mental processes a bit easier
0: Right. when
1: you're like, oh, this, you yeah. know, it's one of I think the blessings of this current era amid all of the discord that we have is that we're starting to be a lot more forthright about issues of mental health Mm. and giving people language to explain the things going on in their own brains and hearts and and lives and bodies so that it's not just, well, I don't know, I just thought everyone hated this and oh, that's not, oh, that's me. I have what I call the itchy sweater metaphor. Mm. (laughs) I post about this on my blog. It's a way I explain to straight cisgender people why I didn't realize I was non-binary when I was 10, for example. Mm. And it's like, if you can imagine that when you're born, you are given a sweater by your parents that you wear all day, every day, it's, it will grow with you. It'll change size as it needs to, but that is your sweater. That's what you always have to wear. And let's say you were given a really itchy sweater. Now, if you'd never known any other sweater or what it felt like, there's a point at which you're just gonna backburner the itch. Like you're aware of it, but you can't focus on it or you won't get anything done. So it's just this background static and you just sort of assume everyone has that because that's just your experience of sweater. Mm. And then one day you may notice, hey, that person's sweater looks a lot more comfortable than mine. I wonder what that's like. And maybe if you're lucky, you get to briefly try on a different sweater. And see how it feels and that sweater feels amazing it's soft it smells nice it's just good against your skin you're like oh is this what everyone else's sweater feels like wait a minute what have i been doing wrong but then you're only getting to try it on for a second so you got to put that itchy sweater back on and oh now you notice how itchy it is oh now it's all you can think of you're like oh now i've seen what possibility there is and why Why have I always assumed I just have to live with this itchy sweater forever. (laughs) But then, you know, so maybe you decide to go full time with that nicer sweater. But there are people who will say, but that itchy sweater is you. That's Mm -hmm. who, you know, we gave you that sweater. We are your parents. How dare you take that? How dare you say it's itchy? It's it's the one that's for you. We picked it out just for you. And anytime someone misgenders you, calls you the wrong pronouns, whatever, it's like they're putting that itchy sweater back Mm. on just for a moment. And that's why it sucks. And that's a metaphor I found some people can get their heads around like, oh, so I'm like, yeah, I didn't even see the other sweater to try on until I was in my late 30s. And then I was like, oh, well, let me see what they them pronouns feel like. Oh, wow. That's what they feel (laughs) like. Heck, why have I been doing this to myself my whole life, you know? So, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Good metaphor. It's really interesting. Uh, I know we're kind of getting off the topic, but I I find it really interesting how the culture is changing and it's opening up and Mm -hmm. um, being more accepting. And it just feels like there are these, talking about your liminal spaces that Mm -hmm. the borders are being pressed upon, not just in terms of gender, but in so many other ways you know, and, and I find it endlessly fascinating. And I can't always say that I understand, but it doesn't matter. All that yeah. is required of me is just to treat every human being with the respect that they deserve. Exactly. You know? um, I think that's the only way to go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and appreciate that there are really itchy sweaters. Um,
1: yeah. Well, and if people really like that, I actually, it's on my blog and I have a downloadable mini zine of that, that you can print Mm -hmm. and fold. It's just one piece of paper back in front. If people want to like have those as a resource Mm -hmm. at an event, I just open source that just take it. Yeah, it's fine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll get your webpage from you. I'll ask you here in a minute, you know, where people can go to find uh, more information. But I, my best friend, her daughter recently came out as non-binary and goes by link. Now uh, I've not had the opportunity to speak with them yet, but will when I visit Denver here pretty soon. So it's, I'm looking forward to the conversation That's to, exciting. because I'm learning so much. You know, from people. And I, you know, I hope everyone opens their minds and embraces these liminal stages.
1: Um, Absolutely. Not yeah. everything has to be this or that. You know, that's an age of Pisces oh, thing, like yeah. sorting everything into column A or column B. We're in the age of Aquarius now. We can be more gray area. It's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. All the fun stuff. It's all the wisdom's in the gray.
1: <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Again, we're the um, supernal triad here. We got
0: yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So the one question that I was going to ask, and this will be one of the last questions I ask you, uh, because I know we're running out of time, but my brain froze, but it was with the, I guess the Sephiroth, but also how the tree of life is broken down into the four worlds. There's a fractal nature to it all. And what came to mind when you were talking was that fractal nature and how because there's this fractal nature to it, that the tree of life is inherently kind of inclusive.
1: Yeah, exactly. So for those who don't know what a fractal is, I will define it. A fractal is a geometric pattern that no matter how close you zoom in or how far you pull out, it's the same, like you will see the same pattern repeated and repeated into infinity either direction and that's what kabbalah is because the entire tree of life that whole process of manifestation all those different Sephiroth, every path is contained within each smaller element of it so the sphere of malkuth has its own full tree of life you know every single sphere has their own tree of life within it so kind of like if you look at the yin yang thing where there is a black dot in the middle of the white side and a white dot in the middle of the black side, everything contains all that came before it, everything that comes after it. It's just turtles all the way down. So, no matter where you are on the tree, there is queer representation to be had. You know, I, I talk about one of the chapters is about Hod and I call it. know analytical ace and intersex and aces like short for asexuality Mm -hmm. or aromanticism so you know even though that's the sphere i feel like asexual people will really find a kinship with because it celebrates platonic relationships but that sphere is also in every other sphere on the tree so it's not like well i just belong here it's like no you get the whole tree man it's okay (laughs) like it's all for you it's all for everybody
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, I think that did come through in your book. I, I loved how inclusive the tree of life became. And so I think it's really important. And, and, and I think that people get quite a bit out of it and I think they'll enjoy it.
1: And I hope so. I think so. they'll
0: enjoy it very much. So the last two questions, uh, these are the questions I always ask the boring questions. What, what's next for you? What do you
1: have coming up? So- Well, in July, I am a virtual speaker at the goddess conference in Glastonbury, in England, which is very exciting I have pre recorded a 20 minute workshop about how Mm. me as a non binary person found the queer divine in Kabbalah so it's a Mm. little bit of my life story. And Mm. I believe that will also be posted on their website after the fact if people want to see that video. So that's in the immediate future. I'm also doing book signings around, uh, starting just with the East Coast. I kind of wanted to get out to the West Coast right now, Mm -hmm. but I'm not super comfortable getting on planes unless I absolutely (laughs) have to at the moment. So I'll probably do that a bit later because I have some friends I really want to see out there. And it's really fun Mm -hmm. to go and meet people who enjoyed the book. Mm -hmm. So I will also be presenting next year at Convocation in Detroit and also at the Sacred Space Conference in Baltimore. And of course I'm working on the next big thing, but I can't really talk about it yet.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's okay. That's understood. Mm. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work and maybe the itchy uh, sweater uh, (laughs) article?
1: Sure. I think if you want to go directly to the itchy sweater one, it's majorarqueerna.com slash itchy, I think is the short way to get there. But don't worry, if you just go to majorarqueerna.com, it is one of the pictures on the homepage, you will see a picture of a person wearing an itchy sweater, it will take you there if I remembered it wrong. Uh, I also have a guide for parents of adult children who have just come out as non binary or trans, because when I was looking for that information from my parents, it was really hard to find. And I was like, wow, Googling this is really hard because it's all for teenagers. But it's like, no, I'm in my 40s and I'm trying to explain this. So I do have a collection of resources um, and ideas specifically for parents of non-binary people as well. That's a very popular post. But majorarqueerna.com and at majorarqueerna on most social networks, I'm not on TikTok. I leave that Mm. to the younger generation. I'm sorry um, that I I try to give people the spaces they have claimed. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And please feel free to, you know, drop me a line if you liked the book. And if you liked the book, I'd also appreciate it if people would leave a review on Amazon and or Goodreads, because number of reviews really matters for how the algorithm treats your book. And I want people to see that it exists.
0: Okay. Well, I'll put links for all of that in the show notes and the video description.
1: Awesome. And
0: I'll, I'll put Amazon, the link to Amazon. I usually, <laughs> uh, I usually put links to bookshop.org because I do
1: as well. Uh, yeah. I'll
0: oh, still actually, put that in there, but okay. Uh, we'll so put I Amazon can... too, just so you can get those reviews.
1: <laughs> At- Thank you. After the, after we're done recording, by the way, I can give you two master links. If you don't want to list 18, I've got like the LinkedIn bio link that has everything and like the links of where to buy it, including bookshop and Amazon and everything. So, okay.
0: All right. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, emphasis, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with, speak with me today. I truly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, It was absolutely delightful.
1: Oh, me too. Thanks, Nick. It's really great to meet you.
0: Okay, you too. And that's a wrap on episode 44 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. This is going to be the last episode of uh, Rebel Spirit Radio for the first season. Um, I will be back. Uh, This episode will release on June 17th and uh, more episodes. The second season will begin in July. Uh, I will also be posting some videos to the YouTube channel during that time, so never fear. Um, This is not the end of Rebel Spirit Radio. I really enjoyed creating these first 44 episodes, and I'm very much looking forward to moving forward with Rebel Spirit Radio, uh, and I hope that I can continue to grow and produce um, excellent, I hope, (laughs) uh, engaging conversations with some uh, pretty profound people. So I thank everyone who's been with me so far, and I hope that you will continue the journey with me uh, when I return in July. That said, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It really only does take a second, and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a moment to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review, and uh, consider subscribing. For those of you viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you'll be informed when I upload new content. Um, You know, I've been trying to release new episodes every week, um, and besides this little break, I hope to continue doing so in the future. Uh, And I am hoping to create more video content, Um, but this takes a lot of time and a lot of work, and... um, Uh, Any support that you can give would be greatly appreciated. Uh, For the time being, I'm only taking payments via PayPal, although I will be launching a Patreon uh, in the very near future. So your support is greatly appreciated, and it makes my work possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.